Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the dailydownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it, dailydownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, dailydownforce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out dailydownforce.com, that's dailydownforce.com, and I'll see you in the replies. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had yeah. been, been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, dailydownforce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item packed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. 
Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. We can sit around here and talk about our family all we want, but you let one son of a gun come in here and talk bad about him, and you're going to have all of us on (laughs) you. I didn't get off my bike and push, I just rode through well, little did I know, his car was down the shop and the guy was working on it. He's sitting there waiting on me and he stuck his <laughs> golf club out and clothesline me. As soon as grandfather seen what I had, he said, now, Timothy, don't be shooting that in the house. So I went upstairs to her sewing room, which is right above the living room where they sit there and watch gun smoke. Well, that's the first thing I do. I fired that booger off. Daddy and mama, every time we left the house, love you, love you. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place in the track. That really does care about NASCAR history, Steve. 2023, our first episode of a new year. What do you think about that, buddy? I'll tell you what, it's going to be a great year for us, Rick, and a great year for our listeners. Well, at the end of the show, we're going to include a little bit of a preview of content that we already have in the can. Some of the Uh interviews that we've done. Good stuff, too. Uh (laughs) Oh, It is really good stuff, and I'm excited about getting it out there. Now, on this podcast, we have mentioned many, many times how I personally feel that our listeners are hands down, without a doubt, no two ways about it, the very best in all of podcasting. And it doesn't matter if it's a NASCAR-related show or not. And Rick, you will get no argument out of me. None. The kindnesses and the generosity that we have been shown since we first started doing this podcast nearly five years ago. Steve, Mm. can you believe that we have been doing this podcast for four and a half years? No, sir, I cannot. When we started this podcast together, I think it was back in my old house in the other part of Charlotte. You drove all the way down there once a week to do that. And I thought to myself, I don't know how much longer Rick is going to be able to put up with this. (laughs) Well, my friend, you have put up with a lot by the same token. Five years, going on five years. Just remarkable. I don't know if you remember this, but that very first day that I came down to sit down with you for this podcast, I forgot 
a part that connects the computer to the soundboard. We couldn't do it that day. I had to go back home, right. which is a little over an hour's drive and then come back the next day. And I could see it in your eyes. Same old Sasquatch. <laughs> <laughs> now back to our listeners, our Patreon support, our PayPal support, Venmo, all kinds of different support that keeps this show going. We have to have it in order yeah. to keep going. But Steve, along the way, I have also received some absolutely amazing gifts. Our listeners are the most generous that I know of, period. I agree with you, Rick. I know about these gifts that you've received, and uh, you're about to tell us another story about it all. Yes, I am. My friend Bill Stripling took Adam and Jesse and me to Martinsville last spring. I have received a photograph autographed by Tom Landry from Jerry Vernold. I received a very nice diecast car autographed by David Pearson from David Light. A vial of sand from Omaha Beach from Chris Wolf, a custom diecast car featuring an Andy Griffith show paint scheme from Daniel Collins, a couple of model cars from Jeremy Ruckelhoff, a ton of stuff for the studio from Jamie Bishop. Well, Jamie has helped us out more ways than I could possibly count, but he did give us a lot of stuff for the studio. Robin Scarberry, Trip Rokes. Jeff Markoski. I got newspapers featuring the Apollo 11 lunar landing from Kathleen McDonald and her friend, Julie Bosley, several Steve Wade rookie cards from Hallie Emery. That's worth a fortune right there. Well, if you say so, <laughs> <laughs> I also received the audiobook version of the book, the boys by Ron and Clint Howard, Opie and Leon from the Andy Griffith show from Scott Cole. And I listened to it. It's one of the best audiobooks I've ever heard because Ron Howard actually read the audiobook. It was like getting a guided tour through his life <laughs> from Opie himself. That is awesome, Rick. That's awesome. Last but certainly not least, Bob Laird gave me a helmet worn by Richard freaking Petty. That's more than awesome, Rick. Now, this Christmas... My faith in the kindness of others was restored one more time. And Steve, you know this story, uh -huh. but it's one that I have to tell because it means so much to me and it always will. There was a print released back in 1998 featuring NASCAR's 50 greatest drivers, and it was signed by all of the surviving members. It's signed by 35 people, and they are legends. Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt, David Pearson, Junior Johnson, Daryl Walker, you name the driver who was on that list. And if they were still living, their signatures are on this poster. Each of the drivers and the families of those who had already passed on received prints. And over the years, several have been available at auction. Now, I've tried bidding on one. I tried sniping at the last minute. Yes, I did. And I admit it, but it didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> but it always got out of reach really quickly. And my bids didn't even meet the reserve price. So I'm never going to get one of these things. Well, the fact that your bids didn't even meet the reserve price gives me a pretty good idea how much that print is really worth, Rick. 
I tweeted during the offseason and asked our followers what their holy grail piece of NASCAR memorabilia would be, what prized NASCAR item they would like to receive for Christmas. And I included a picture of that print because that would be my NASCAR holy grail, period. Not long afterwards, somebody sent me a link to one on Facebook's marketplace that was available for a price that I could maybe kind of sort of afford if I bartered and dickered and sold off a couple of my NASA treasures, maybe some blood, maybe some plasma, something like that. <laughs> I could see myself getting it. The fact that you would sell off some NASA treasures, woo, you really wanted this print. I'm serious now. I sold off some NASA stuff. There we go. Well, even then, I still wasn't sure. And so I actually posted the link to that print in Facebook's marketplace. And I said, will somebody please buy this so I won't be tempted to myself? But with that being said, I started to kind of obsess about it. And I sold everything off. I got the money. I got back in touch with the seller, whose name is Sam Cogburn who then told me it had already been sold to somebody else. Oh, man. And there was a part of me that was actually relieved because I wouldn't have to worry about it. I wow. wouldn't have to have that beacon light shining out there. Yeah, well, admit it, Rick, you had to be disappointed. Come on. Well, Do all I, that work and raise all that money and it's gone? Well, you know, sometimes things work out. Uh -huh. That deal supposedly fell through. So Jeannie and I made the trip to meet Sam in Sanford, North Carolina, J.D. McDuffie's hometown. Yes, it is. So I could buy the print. And honestly, even making the two-hour trip down to Sanford, I wasn't quite sure what to expect because Sam didn't want me to pay him via PayPal. He said he wanted me to see the print first to make sure it was what I thought it was. And honestly, yes, I'm a journalist. And journalists tend to be sometimes a little bit cynical. Uh -huh. So in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that old Sam has got me on the line, but he doesn't want to accept the money. He's maybe entertaining other offers to get a little bit more money out of, or a whole lot more money out of it. Uh -huh. So we meet and there's the print and it's gleaming in the afternoon sun, like the Ark of the Covenant in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Rick, where did you come up with that? I know about the Ark of the Covenant and Raiders of the Lost Ark, but I would have never said anything about it here. Steve, this thing was beautiful. It is legit. It's the real deal. It is this print. And Steve, I go to hand Sam the money, and he says, no, you keep that. Somebody bought it for you. You are kidding me. I have been told a lot of things over the years that left me absolutely stunned. Hey, Rick, when could you start work at Winston Cup scene? <laughs> <laughs> Rick and Jeannie, you're having twins. <laughs> hey, Rick, you and Sasquatch look just alike. <laughs> oh, okay. You had to go. Okay. This is a feel-good story, and you have to go the Sasquatch route. I'm glad nothing has changed in 2023. <laughs> he then put me on the phone with that person who asked that their name not be used here on the show or social media. And if they don't want it used, it ain't going to be used. And Steve, I couldn't help it. I got kind of emotional. Now, 
Christmas was okay this year, but I always tend to get a little blue as it approaches. I've lost my mom and my dad, but this year in particular, I got even a little more spun out about not getting to see my granddaughter celebrate. She's the daughter of my son from my first marriage. And you think this story is long. That's a way longer odyssey. (laughs) So I was dealing with that and Christmas was Christmas and Christmas was over. And there I am standing on main street in Sanford with this amazing gift that I had wanted that. Yeah. I coveted for more than 20 years because of a little old podcast that you and I produce. Rick, that's an amazing Christmas story. And I really feel good for you because you wanted that so badly. You worked so hard to get it. And then somebody had the thoughtfulness to give it to you as a gift. Just tremendous. I got to be honest with you. I'm humbled. I don't deserve the print, especially given its historical significance and the number of people who signed it. So listeners, everybody, thank you so much for keeping us going. You guys do not know what your encouragement means to me and how it keeps me going. All I can say is this, because of that encouragement, we're going to keep doing this podcast and we're going to keep doing our best to bring you the best content that we possibly can. And I'd be right there with you, Rick, right there with you. That great content starts with our first interview of the year. We're bringing out the big guns to get things started off right. (laughs) This week, we have the first of what will be three installments with Richie, Mark, and Timmy Petty, Maurice Petty's sons. Having met those three gentlemen several times in the past, Rick, I got a feeling this could be wild. They take us through what it was like to grow up as part of one of NASCAR's most famous families and the standards that they were expected to live up to. And let's just put it this way. You did not mess with Lee Petty's putting green. (laughs) (laughs) At all. Period. End of discussion. (laughs) One of his most hardline rules. Old Lee was just about as fond of golf as he was a racer. He took it pretty seriously. Well, let's put it this way. There was a mention of a belt owned Uh-oh. by Maurice Petty that he had received in conjunction with one of the Winston Cup championships that the team had won. And let's just say that that belt hadn't just been used to hold Maurice's pants up. <laughs> of that, I have no doubt. I suspect it was a worthwhile learning device. <laughs> <laughs> Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the October 4th, 1979 issue of Grand National Scene. Rain washes out the race at North Wilkesboro, but not before Dell Earnhardt has a chance to break the track qualifying effort. We've got features on Richard Petty's 800th NASCAR start and crew chief Bob Johnson, as well as a letter to the editor from a rival crew chief furious with Darrell Waltrip. And when I say furious, this old boy was spun out. Absolutely. He did not like what happened to him. I don't know that spun out is the right term. Maybe being used as a hood ornament (laughs) (laughs) was his issue. And then finally, if you're wondering why this issue in particular was our issue of the week, 
there is a Gene Granger column dreaming about the perfect cast for a NASCAR movie. Uh-oh. Just wait until you hear who Gene picked to play you. I'm not sure I want to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a good one. <laughs> this week, we have new Patreon support from Kevin McKenzie and some additional support from Bobby Tidwell. Now, normally, at this point in our episode, we would be talking about Patreon and PayPal and how important it is to receive that funding. And it is important. We can't do this show without it. But this week, I'm not going to ask for Patreon support. I'm not going to give out that link. And here's why, Steve. Our friend, Tony Liberati, you know him as Rambo. That's right. He has had some surgery, triple bypass. And I went to see him in the hospital, and he was obviously being Rambo. But after the surgery, he has encountered some problems and he's went back and forth to the ICU. I got a text from his wife, Yvette, this morning. He's doing better. Let's just say that it's going to be a little bit of a road coming back yeah. for Rambo. A GoFundMe account has been started to help defray some of the costs that they are going to be experiencing in the coming months. Rambo is insured, but they do have a deductible and everything. So with the kind of surgeries that he's had and the difficulties that he's encountered since then, NASCAR people help out their own. They always have, and they always will. So go check out that link. I've pinned it to the top of our Twitter feed. So you can find the link there. Please support it however you can. If you can't do anything monetarily, support it by retweeting it, by sharing it, and letting other people know about it. So help Tony Rambo out. With that being said, just as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American City Business Journal's owner of the same brand. So first of all, introduce yourselves, Timmy, then Richie, and then finally the kid brother, Mark. I'm Timmy Petty. Richie Petty. I'm the baby Mark. <laughs> For each of you, what is your earliest memory of your dad being involved in racing? If I go first, go you're oh, Anybody, you anybody, start. just uh, jump in. You can start it. Well, um, yeah. I can remember you know, early on, and, and Daddy did, like, he would take, it was a real race car, but he would take it to different places, and I didn't realize what it was, uh, so that was probably on up in the 60s, you know, uh, on, before 70s for sure. So, and then, you know, we went to Daytona and Atlanta and somewhere else where they had a lake in the middle of it, and I was told <laughs> not to go near that lake, and what's the first thing I do? Go to the lake. Did you go to the lake? Yeah, <laughs> and you can only imagine what happened after that. <laughs> Well, I was, I was born in '68, and so I guess my earliest memories would have been early '70s, and us going to the races with Daddy around the race shop. I didn't think nothing about you know being race cars, and it was just a it was home. But I can remember you know when we was kids going to the races with Daddy. Probably '70, '71, '72. I can probably have a little bit of memories of him at the racetracks in early memories. 
Are you actually named after Richard? Well, or have it? Uh, yes, and I, I and it's uh, it's been I can't. It's been aggravating through the years because back in the day when he was the when he was when he was the heat whatever, you know, I'd go to the doctor's office and they'd say Richard Petty and then everybody'd look and like where's he at <laughs> and I'm like no I'm not the not not the older guy in there but yeah I think it was uh, it was uh, the story went that uh, uh, I don't even know I can't even remember what the race was but it, Mama had told him if you win this race then we'll name him after after you and sure enough he went and won the race but at that time Elliot was winning everything going so. Well, you know, I've got a son named Richard, and I've got a son named Adam. Okay. And it's not by coincidence. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm uh, awesome. I, I'm I'm Richard Ellsworth, and this is Mark Judson. Lee's dad's name was Judson Ellsworth. Daddy's middle name was Maurice Ellsworth. So I got I'm named after Richard, and after Daddy, and uh, I guess Lee's dad. And he's named after Lee's dad with, with Judson. And then Mark has a son. I'm getting. In, I'm stepping. No, that's in. fine. Mark, that's Mark, Mark, Mark has a son's name. His name's Judson, and my son Ramsey. He's he's carried on to Ellsworth. So Ramsey Ellsworth and Judson. I got stuff with Kathleen. Yeah. Yep. Which is pop red. Yep. You know something that I have been intrigued by ever since I walked in the door. Most people listening to this would think of the Patties going back to the days of Lee Patty. You know that's when that's when the Patty family started. You guys have done research going back generations upon generations upon generations well with, with grandmother's side we can we can trace it back to the beginnings in level cross in probably 1870s uh, but lee's daddy we go back with him into uh the early 1900s but they uh his his grandfather's grandfather he lived up here above the road at burnett's chapel and uh but they come out of Greensboro. But the the tombs and the Hodgins on grandmother's side, that's who come out of Level Cross. So so we can go back to the 1870s chasing back to those guys and uh and with grandmothers uh grandfathers both sides, they well, were they from this area. Earlier than that, in the Civil War. Well, that's what I'm, that's what I'm going back to. Uh, so, well, Richie's our historian. He, oh, he, he's, well, he's got it all. <laughs> but I tell you where we is lucky, um, my opinion, through the Maybe from about 86 when we started, when mm-hmm. Dad started Maurice Petting Associates. So we started racing at Caraway or whatever. But from then up until we lost Grandfather, he'd come down here every day, 1130, picked us up, and we went to lunch. Wow. And so we were fortunate that our history lessons came straight from the horse's mouth. Right. Yeah. And um, Grandmother spent a lot of time down here in our, you know, she'd visit up there with, with Richard and Petties and part of her routine. But we always listened when they told family stories. And we uh, we go back to, with the racing side of it, for the petties, you got to remember, our grandfather was in the very first race. Our dad and our uncle and our grandmother were in the stands at the first race. So we go back to the beginnings of NASCAR, <laughs> as far as the stories, what he's telling you. They would tell us stuff every day. And we would we we would, uh, we were like sponges. We would absorb it. Yeah, we're pretty proud of that. Yeah, for for to be a part of that. And we, he would what what he would learn a little bit. He'd learn a little bit, and I'd learn a little bit. We'd put it together, and we, that's how we continue to remember it. And that's why we're trying to do a uh, a little YouTube channel now of our own, is to document the stories that they taught us, so we can keep them alive for our kids for generations to come. Because you know we're fifties and Timmy's sixty. 
we're not spring chickens anymore and we're afraid we're going to start forgetting this stuff so we're trying to document it for our kids and our grandkids coming up because of that relationship with your grandparents and, and them being a part of your lives and taking you to lunch and telling you the family stories i get the sense that you guys are kind of the keepers of the petty tradition because i mean you have a museum in this shop here that's separate from the one that most of the public knows well i guess we're we were kind of fortunate that our grandmother didn't throw anything away, and our mother, <laughs> and our mother, she was the same way. Yeah, and, and we're, it, we, we've, we've inherited. We've done a good job being. Yeah, but grandfather, one of his uh, his deals was, you know, put that in the. You might need it later, and daddy continued that, so we got it on both ends. So. What's your earliest memory of? Uh, well, I'm. A, I was born in 1969, so I'm I'm the latest, but uh, or the youngest, but I'm like Richie. I remember. Uh, going to the races our dad bought a uh Trav- travco motorhome he's probably one of the first ones to carry a, a bus to the racetrack but he'd done that so that the family could be together mom and all those kids and man if you that, that that's some of my earliest memories is going to the races in the motorhome and especially when we go to atlanta or uh talladega we stop in spartanburg and pick up our grandparents Brother, yeah. popper he had worked for bud moore at the time but he'd still ride from there with us in the camper so it was a big family deal and if you really track through our whole race and from the from the time we was babies all the way up it was all done as a family mm-hmm. our, our mom and dad were really big on everybody doing things together and we, we were blessed i don't know that we knew the blessings no. of being as a family but you know we went around arca with richie and all that stuff mom and dad was there it was just it was it was us and it's I think that went back. I think that went back to Daddy growing up with grandmother and grandfather and Richard all going to the races together. It was a family unit. They were tight knit. I mean, grandmother was making lunches for the for the pit crew, and then as that went on, as they grew, then mother and Linda, then they were making the lunches and stuff for the pit crews. That, that was the catering service. So it was all a big family deal. But like Mark said, Daddy was really tight about having us together. It was uh, when he could, he, we was always at the races with him. Seriously, like to it. add to Mark's story, um, Nana and Pop had went to Talladega separately, and Pop came south with Tiny Lund out of Iowa or wherever they was. You know, he's at Iowa. Well, I'm, I don't know where Tiny was from. He I, was I'm from Iowa. He was, was yeah, from they, Iowa too. But anyway, Tiny, I forget what year it was, but he tragically lost his life at Talladega. Seventy-five. Yeah. And Nana and Pop, we we drove home, and I remember how upset Pop. And at the time, you know, you've been a kid, well, you didn't realize. Mama said, "Y'all could be, y'all be quiet." One of one of Pop's best friends. Yeah, and we we knew of Tiny, but we didn't know the story until later. But now, him, Pop was your Kenny Kenny Miles, my, our mom's dad. Okay, all right, okay, our, all right. Our mom's stepdad, but he. The only was, so it was Pop Myler and grandfather petty yes right. okay. for sure <laughs> it wasn't pop myers was pop red pop red that's what we called grandfather lee boy yeah well, well we, from, later on as he got as he mellowed out when you was a young fella <laughs> you went in there it was grandmother and grandfather and there was he didn't there went in, no we, we, call, we called grandfather at the end of his really strict days and then we were fortunate to be around him when he mellowed out lightened yeah. up a little bit yeah but we got to see enough of it that we knew, and we, and we knew to tow the line. And we seen the same with our, with our dad. The intensity that he had in the 70s that we grew up with to when the 80s and yep. 90s, we could see a change in him. So we, we were around some of the, the, the most intense times that you could think of of our grandfather and our dad. And then we seen the most mellow times of them. Now, how much time did you guys spend 
here at the shop. How far away did you live? <laughs> right across the road. Yeah, and, well, see, and even I still live right through the woods, about you know less than a quarter mile. Mark lives still right. I live right, right here in Richard's original, <laughs> original house. house and, the house that and, he right beside grandma yeah. and grandfather's little brick house. Yeah, really? that was Richard and, and Linda. They built that house in '62. And and daddy, daddy, he lived right across the road. And then grandmother, so you know we. And we, my son Judson's living in my mom and dad's that's house. That's where now, he's so. living now. So. Wow. Yeah, and our sister Elizabeth Ann lives right across yeah, the road. So. Now, does anybody live in your grandparents' house? No, it's it's right. actually I'm sorry, but it's actually a historical site now. Yeah. It's part of the Richard and them took it took it on, and it's part of the okay. museum. And right. you got which is the best yeah, thing the best for thing house. for that house because if you go look at the house, grandmother's dad, he was a. Uh, 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 when you cut wood, what do you call it? Um, Woodcutter. Yeah, sawmill. Saw run a sawmill. Saw yeah, saw yeah. saw <laughs> he run a saw. That's what I'm trying to think. He run a sawmill, and anyway, he they cut all that uh, walnut wood and everything in there. Black come off, come off of this property. So that that that's really historical. That house coming up on 100 years old. It is 100 years old. I believe it was built in 20. I think I got documents of the first deed in 22, 23. There you go. So, that's, yeah. that's pretty neat. Years. But he was a he was a, a sawmill runner, and uh, I got documents of him when he bought his first sawmill off the guy up the road there. He bought two 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 mules and a and the sawmill, and that's where they got started at down here running their sawmill. And he was in other other little ventures too, but that was his legal ventures, I guess you'd call it. <laughs> <laughs> you said that you spent a lot of time here at the shop. Where was the best place to get into trouble? And get out of trouble. Man, it gets, Show up over here. Yeah, when it, when it, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't allowed over yeah, here. During the seventies, yeah, you coming through there. We thought we was big time. If we come in here about four o'clock and they had break, we could sit on the old crank boxes and eat peanuts and drink an RC with Daddy. That was big time. But then, as soon as the break bell went off, you was out the door, and we'd come out here into the back in the warehouses, and that's where we hung out. And I got you some good stories on them warehouse stories, but yeah, but that's on down the road here. But yeah, when we was coming up, me and Rich would be at that great age, you know, 10, 11, 12. exploring. <laughs> but it'd be summertime, and we'd get on mother's nerves, and then she'd send us over here to Daddy, and that wasn't a pretty sight when you had when he had to stop work. To discipline you. Yeah. He, he looked at us and said, from now on, he says, when I leave for work, y'all leave the house. I don't care where you go what you do, and you better not come home till after I'm home. So yeah. we would roam the woods and the shops oh, yeah. and all, but Just, we, it was a— uh, We got in a lot of good good trouble and good memories. But here was the thing. If you come from Daddy's, we'd come across the road on our bikes. Once you got over to Grandfather's house, because he had a putting green in the back, you better get off your bike and push it on that little bit of sidewalk he had— because if you got on his putting green, then you'd get in more trouble for getting on his putting no green. Doubt. I told my mama one time and one time only that one of her whippings didn't hurt. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I found out very quickly that well, that wasn't you, the thing to do. You've seen in our cabinet in there that uh, Winston Cup champion belt buckle and belt. Oh, I had the, the Winston Cup uh, uh, tattooed, <laughs> the <reverse> <laughs> tattooed <laughs> on the backside of me. Brandon. <laughs> All right, so you mentioned the warehouse stories. Tell me a good warehouse story. Well, we had basketball goals set up in the warehouse. We'd play basketball we'd, inside. We'd Kyle and them would put them up. Yeah. They'd, they'd go in break time and play. Right, and so we'd, we'd go in there and play basketball, and we would explore through some of the stuff. Because the building we're talking about, the warehouse, was what they called the Chrysler Barn. It was built in the 70s when that's where all the – when they did the kit cars and all the Chrysler motors and stuff, that's where all the stuff was stacked up to the ceilings with parts. 
So you could go in there and actually get lost. But as the time went on, all that Chrysler stuff got moved out. Then all, all the old cars and stuff would get put in there. Well, we would get in there and just explore and find stuff, old helmets and things, and play with. <laughs> I don't know if I should tell this or not. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> There's the old 1980 Oldsmobile, and it's sitting down there in the museum somewhere. And it's got right there at the driver's door, it says, in. And then this car was made from the... These old model people, the, 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 the what was that? Not Smithsonian, but Franklin. Franklin Mint made it and all that, and everything was to detail, and it's like supposedly come off the racetrack just like this. Well, the, Richard had this deal with Squincher, and uh, it was like a drink drink thing, like a Gatorade or whatever, Squincher, and it was like this little thing. So we're back there messing around one day, and we take him old Squincher things, we take a razor and we cut into and get the end on it, and so we stick it on the door end. That N is still on that car today, and people think that Richard raced it like that, but we put it on there in the warehouse, screwing around one day. <laughs> <laughs> it's even on the little car. Yeah, so that's what I said, the Franklin Mint. So, you know, like but the, that, so when but, you see but, that but, N. But it's part of the petty history it, because the little brats were in. Yeah, it, it, that, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> but I'm saying when you, when you see that N on that car, do you think of us? Because we, we did that just messing around. Now, where is the N? Where is that? On the driver's on the door. door where you'd on climb the door. in. Yeah, so when you see it. But everybody thinks that's the way they raced it. It didn't. It come from me and Mark out there messing around the warehouse. I do not recall. <laughs> Play what, what do you call it? Play the, the, statue of, the statue of limitations have run oh, out. Man. So you've mentioned your grandfather and grandmother, and you've mentioned the before Lee and the after Lee. What do you remember of the strict Lee? Well, anybody want me to take it? Well, I mean, it's like Richie said. You, you referred to them as grandmother and grandfather. It, if you said grandma or anything, it was a... Uh, it wasn't pretty. And, yeah, and, yes, and, sir. And, and, no, and sir. him talking about the riding the bikes across the putting green. Well, when you, when you ride up Daddy's driveway, you could look across the road back then. When Grandfather's car was gone, he's usually gone to the uh, golf, course. golf course. So, you know, me, smart Alec, I seen he wasn't there. So when I come through, I didn't get off my bike and push. I just rode through. Well, little did I know, his car was down in the shop, and the guy's working on it. He's sitting there waiting on me, and he stuck his <laughs> golf club out and clotheslined me. <laughs> I never rode on that well, again. He, uh, he, he was, it was like, his, you had to be yes, sir, and no, sir. It was grandmother, it was grandfather, and you, he, he wanted to respect them and who they were. And we were brought up with that way with Daddy, too. We was yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. We were we we grew up in a strict family on our well, you side. Speak when you're spoken to, right. and never interrupt adults. I, I I can remember interrupting Daddy oh. and another adult talking one time. Well, he, he didn't say nothing; just backhanded and, me, and that was it. And let me tell you, you know, it was, was like that was yeah. it. And the yeah. way we were brought up, when when Richard, Mars, and Lee were together, you got away from them. You did not. You didn't interfere. Those three were. Um, I don't know if it's like a. They, they had enough interruptions. They didn't need. It a, was yeah no, but I'm telling you, it was you. You got run out. That that was a serious conversation when you had the three of them together, and nobody better be butting in. I mean, they wouldn't. And so definitely, when they were meeting, we were we had to get on the other side of the world more or less. They didn't want to hear from us. Well, and I think what we call strict and what we thought was strict, listening to stories that Daddy and 
Uncle Richard have said, we, we probably really never even seen Grandfather Strick. Not not like well, him, Because no. they said even when we thought he was mean, he had calmed down. Yeah. Yeah. So, not mean. I don't want to say he was mean. Well, but he was, Daddy tells stories about him when Richard and, and, and Daddy were, were, were kids, when they'd, he'd tell them, get out there and pick up rocks in the yard. Because just to stay busy. Just to stay busy, yeah. yeah. And then, place, and if you yeah. didn't, it, <laughs> Richard had put in a... Uh, a weight room here in about 85, 86 when they come back. <laughs> for and, the pit crews. For the pit crews. Yeah. And it, it was a nice weight room and all that. So me and Mark, you know, we're in high school. So we come over here one evening. We're out here lifting weights. And, you know, this is this is big time for us because we, hey, we had better weights here than we had school because we're playing football and all that. So we're, we're working out. And Grandfather, he come in there. And he said, y'all come here. Yeah, what are y'all doing? We're working out. He said, I'll give you a workout. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> he, said, he said, come up here. I'll put you to work. He'd give us a, a hatchet and had to start chopping the uh, all roots. Them, all roots. them oak trees in his yard? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he, he, gave, he handed me and him a hatchet, and he said, go around here and knock all the tops off these roots. I'm tired of hitting them with my lawnmower. He said, you got energy enough said, to lift them weights. Out, you can get out them weights. Yeah, you got enough energy to lift weights. You got <laughs> energy to work. So we never let him catch us. No, so we, we kept a... <laughs> what was the backhoe story? We kept a lookout. Well, that was with Daddy. Yeah, that was Daddy. Daddy had a water leak over his house one day, about halfway down the driveway, and a friend of ours from Random and Phil Pendry he, he run a little dump truck back backhoe service. Well, he seen us in there and pulled in. Me and Richie's got work shovels, and we're probably, what, four foot deep? Yeah. Four well, foot December, wide. December. It was cold. December cold, trying to find this water leak. And old Phil asked that daddy sitting there on his golf cart directing us, of course. But um, <laughs> Phil said, Chief, you need a backhoe? He says, no, I already got two. <laughs> Me and <laughs> but you got to, here's the deal on the water. The, they, when they run the dinos here back in the 70s, no, that's, you, they had to have a lot of water. And we're on well water. Right? We're on well water. We don't have all that. So there was, Daddy had a big well over at his house. So that water came from his house over to the shop. And then there was two wells here at the garage. So it took three wells to keep this place rolling. And uh, as time went on, them, them lines would get, Deteriorated and they start leaking. Well, we'd have to go dig them up and get them fixed, and then that's that's the deal on that water line. Now, now tell me about grandmother Patty. I've seen one interview ever with her, and it was in Grand National Scene. Mm. And the only other thing that people seemed to know about her was that she forbid or forbade liquor on the car or or whatever well tell me, tell me a good grandmother she case. she might have forbid liquor and stuff like that that was a story that went but her daddy was a moonshiner so she didn't she wasn't that against liquor she just didn't want people drinking and getting drunk okay you know okay. what i mean she wasn't against the liquor like everybody says it was her daddy made liquor and what was was the old story you know had liquors for for sale and not drinking kind of deal you know so, <laughs> yeah. so that's her deal but anyway, she was a strict lady too, and uh, but she was really proper. I mean, you you people called her Miss Petty, we called her grandmother, and I can tell you with grandfather and grandmother, they come from a different generation, and they didn't show the love early on like people do today. I mean, like with Daddy and Mama, every time we left the house, love you, love you, and uh, anyway. Can I take over for a minute? Yeah, well, I'm just going to say, Mom, Mom and Daddy, every time we left the house, it was, love you, we love you. You know, They were pretty strict, but they wasn't really, like, going to beat your butt, right, you know what right, I mean, yeah. and, and stuff like that. 
But the only whipping I remember getting from grandmother or grandfather was at the same night. Uh, Mom and dad went on a trip and didn't stay with them much, but we, I was at the house, and it was one of them winters where it snowed real bad, and, and one of our cousins had took us to Kmart or somewhere and bought a half-scale M1 Garand cap gun, you know, the little roll cap guns. I got in more trouble with cap guns than anything that you can shake stick at, but anyway... When I got home with it, I was busting a gut to shoot that thing. And as soon as grandfather seen what I had, he said, Now, Timothy, <laughs> don't be shooting that in the house. Well, it was winter, and they then told us to not to go outside. You know, it, it, we didn't have many bad snowstorms, but this was a pretty bad one. So I went upstairs to her sewing room, which is right above the living room where they sit there and watch gun smoke. Well, that's the first thing I do. I fired that booger off, and and he started hollering, come down here, and, and I think I got my butt tore up twice before I could get, and, and, and got that thing took away, and they put it out there in the smokehouse, and it stayed out there for <laughs> probably for years. There. But anyway, that's uh, that's that's one of my fondest memories, and it was, had to do with getting my butt tore up. <laughs> I remember young memory, you know, going growing up, going in grandmother's house, she always had that candy cabinet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, you, with you know, chocolate-covered raisins or peanuts. Yep. Yep. You know, yep. he's talking about the grandmother watching us or whatever, and I guess it was 79 when they was in Ontario, she was watching us. And uh, with grandmother and grandfather, when she when she made supper, we had to drink milk because that's what grandfather drank was milk. Yeah. And so I always hated that. Yeah, I didn't Mama, like Mama made sweet tea, and we'd, I mean, she'd, she'd make two and a half cups of sugar in her sweet tea, so we was used to drinking sweet tea. But grandmother and grandfather make you drink milk at supper time. So that was that was one thing she was strict on. And she made cornbread a lot. Yeah. But when you say strict, I, I just no, think just I respectful. Just, they just wanted respect. Yeah. Right. They, they yeah. showed yeah. respect and they wanted. Yes, yeah, sure. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And uh, you know, looking back, it wasn't. They were like Timmy said. They wasn't mean. No. But you, uh, but you told the line. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's yeah like, you knew it. You, but there was no question. It's like grandmother's house. You didn't go in that front parlor room unless it was Christmas. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> or because the, the chairs, all were everything, there, all, like the, all the antique was, stuff. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, if you went in there without or upstairs, grandfather, he he would get on you. Well, part of that was it was that black walnut, and and the stairs were real slick and steep. And what's the first thing a kid wants to do? You get on your butt and go down yeah. the steps. Well, I think everybody's had their butt ripped for that. You know, uh, going out so, and trying to go down the steps. Yeah. So they were. You, you you had your limitations of what you could do around them. And uh, and he was, grandfather, like, out there playing golf. He, in his front yard, he had a, a little, like a chipping chipping area. You could take a nine iron or, or a chipping wedge and go across. It was about 150 across. And if he was out there hitting golf balls when he was younger, he, he would say, you know, he'd come over and try to teach you how to swing a golf club. And he had no patience because if you swung it, wrong the first time then he would just throw his hands up and say well you figure it out because you wasn't listening to me so he just didn't have a lot of patience for young young fellas right around that time <laughs> for sure but he taught me how to play golf he taught me how to I play mean, golf too yeah. about it. all right so big question here who was your favorite cousin on your dad's side was it sharon lisa or rebecca because surely it wasn't kyle well, <laughs> I meant different. I, I, I bought pictures to prove it. Kyle was my hero. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, we, I mean, I, here, here I am. I'm, I'm 10 years old when Kyle goes to Daytona and runs that ARCA race. And a week or two after that, we had school pictures. 
And my mom had to buy two sets of pictures, one with the clothes <laughs> on that she wanted me to wear. Yeah. And the other ones, I, I begged to wear my Kyle Petty t-shirt and my Kyle Petty hat. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, so, no, I... Um, well, it's like when we went to, we, there's pictures of us at the, the Knoxville World's Fair, walking around the, the World's Fair, and we got the Kyle Petty shirts on. But, but you know, coming up, here we are, you know, Kyle in high school. Kyle was a great athlete, basketball, football. I remember being, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, going to the ball games just to watch Kyle play. Yeah. So there's, what, nine years difference between? Eight for me and nine yeah. for yeah. you. Okay. Timmy's two. Two, two years. Timmy was, he, he grew up more with Kyle. Now, Rebecca was, she was a little younger than us, so four or five years yeah so, i mean I, I don't know if i got a favorite i yeah, mean I love no, them all and yeah, they yeah got that me was and rebecca was closer because of yeah. our age we went to high yeah. school together okay all right and, and i still work for rebecca to this day so okay yeah but all but all four of them i mean like like i said when kyle first started racing my, I mean, he was my hero. Yeah. I looked up no, that was more a dig at Kyle than it was yeah, actually. Well, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, we had we had no favorites. We got along with everybody. We were all, I mean, we were all pretty good buddies for a yeah. long. I mean, but I can like tell you, like he is, yeah. I can tell you right here. We can sit around here and talk about our family all we want, but you let one son of a gun come in here and talk bad about him, and you're gonna have all of us on you. <laughs> and that's yeah. the truth. And that goes back to grandmother and grandfather. And we can have our opinions on Kyle or whoever. But don't you come in here getting between us because we're going to take Kyle's side. But, but like, like say, growing up, uh, I guess it was whoever you were closest in age right. to. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, you, I see you, grew up you, with you went to high school together and you, you hung out around together. Well, and, and, and it took it, different stages on, too. Look, man, back in the 70s, when, like you said, when the king was the king. Yep. And we, we, everywhere we went, if we was lucky enough to get to go, we hung out in the motels together. We did stuff. We picnicked together every weekend, you know, at, at the racetrack. And, uh, it was just part of life. I mean, you didn't know no better. You didn't, you know what I mean? It was just good times. Yeah. Yeah. Was there a specific instance where you really understood how big a deal the Petty name was mm. to a lot of people? Or was that just something that developed over time? Probably the Petty Parfait down at the door. <laughs> yeah. After, after the King <laughs> won in July down there. And That's about well, you have car to explain that 70, story. 77 or sometime in there. And it was at the Reef. At the Reef Hotel. And, uh, like I said, over the years we stayed at the Sea Dip, the Reef, uh, maybe Whatever. some others down there. I mean, you know, and looking back on it, they wasn't really the fanciest, but they they seemed fancy to oh, us. Oh, they was fancy because it's on the beach. The motels, was good times. Motels, but they uh, there was an ice cream shop, and in July, as you know, that race used to be launched at eleven o'clock in the morning. You know, for the Fourth of July race at Daytona, or and, earlier. Yeah. Well, it started at 11, didn't it? Because okay. you used to have to go in early. But anyway, he won the race, and when we got back, that ice cream shop had a red, white, and blue, because it was 4th of July. It was called the Petty Parfait. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I think, guess that's when we thought it, it kind of took off. I think, I think when I seen <laughs> I we was, remember. I think when, when I figured out it was kind of a big deal, was going to Pocono. It was probably 74, 75, and you showed up, and this whole little community shut down. And they had like a all the like the Allisons and the Petties, the Pearsons, the Parsons, Parsons, and these people would feed us all this Italian food. And <laughs> but but they shut down their whole community and welcomed all these racing people in. And we were talking about that with Daddy before he passed away, and we couldn't remember those people, but you know, and don't know who would know them. You know, because a lot of those guys are gone. But yeah, it was just little things like that. It was uh, it was unusual that we didn't get around home. That you'd see. It was like a block party when when you went to Pocono, 
and everybody knew about it. All the the, the well, hot dogs and, back then. And, and a lot of it was uh, for me the time because you know when I come up, you didn't realize how big a deal it was till it was gone. Yeah, you know, till after '83 and everybody yeah. went their separate yeah. ways. Yeah. I, I think that's when I started being like, "Oh, hang on a second, that was a big deal." Because up to that point, it just it was the way you grew up, part of life, and it was. And it's, I've heard Kyle say it before that, you know, he's in the first second grade before you realized everybody in the world didn't go to Brockenham mm-hmm. and didn't go to Martinsville, yeah. didn't go because you you look at somebody at school and you watched a race yesterday and they. What well, are you I was about? So, I was uh, 1976 Daytona. Uh, I was in the third grade, and we got back because we take a week and a half, two weeks to go to Daytona Beach for uh, for February. And when I got back, I was the show and tell. I had to get up there and give play by play of the race. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was kind of neat. That was kind of a local celebrity in my class. I got into racing. My best friend from high school, his mom, is the biggest race fan that I know. I mean, she, yeah. I mean, to this day. On Friday afternoon, she prints out a spreadsheet of when truck qualifying is on TV, when when the truck race, uh, Xfinity race and qualifying and all that. That's her weekend, and you don't call her on Sunday <laughs> afternoons during the race. Well, that's And Richard Petty is her idol. I mean, idol. So everything that I've ever done in the sport has been geared towards with this interest, Sandy. To my knowledge, I know that she's met Richard at least twice. It's always a great reaction when she's able to meet him. I tell that story to say this or to ask this. What is your most memorable reaction that a fan has had Mm. to either your dad or Richard or Dale or Kyle or whoever, or to you because Mm. you're a petty? That's a pretty loaded question. Yeah, I mean, there's so many. It would have to do. It, it had to do with the king. I mean, because he, he's just well, he's again, just got like, that. Like Richie talking about that neighborhood that everybody yeah. was there and stuff like that. Yeah, that was fans. I mean, you know. Yes. And, and and I tell you, being young and they had the open house. Yes. Or the fan club yeah, yeah. deals. Well, yeah. 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 But when they had that big open house in 1974, and then they had another one in '83. Yes. Yeah, or but, one to watch the people. Line up. How many people lined up and waited just to have a second to talk to that man? And it, it you know, put in perspective. Like well, the '83 one, a big deal. the '83 one, and I don't. Uh, the, the Highway Patrol had um, projected the, the attendance, but it was a two-day affair. It's two days, Saturday and Sunday, and each day had over fifty thousand people in Level Cross. The the fields were full of cars. The people were lined up for a mile, and I think that's you hit it right there. That's when I realized. What the, the, the reaction the, the, of what's, what the, the, what the he fans' meant, reaction what Richard, all of them at one group. And, what Richard meant to yeah. other people and what the whole family meant to everybody. Well, and what he still carries to this day. Yeah, too. but it was unbelievable. And I, I try to explain that to my kids because you watch racing now and the stands ain't even full. But Level Cross, for two days, man, was, was, was just packed full of people. And it went from sun up to sundown. It was a big, big party. There was stuff going on. It was like a fair and that was you. You hit the nail on the head right there. That was when I, the '74 one, the first open house, when I realized it was a big deal. Yeah. What was your dad's reaction to that kind of stuff? Did he enjoy the attention, or was he he more serious about working on no, the race he, car? He, and... he 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 enjoyed the people. 
he he enjoyed sitting down and talking to people. But if it was a day to to have to work, then people he'd get the bad reputation of being closed off because he had more important things to do. But on things like that, when it was time to meet and and, and get amongst the people, he loved the people. He loved talking to them and and, and, when, and what part I remember of out of him when they had those big open houses, is he he would be so busy because he was. He was he was the guy. He was put this here, this here, that there, the orchestrator. Yeah. Well, but I think that's what he did at yeah. work too. He was just he, he was gets a, he gets he gets the uh, as being as an engine builder. He was running the whole thing. You know what I mean? Him and Richard and Richard was 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 between them two. Nothing went across them desk without them approving it. So when they had them open houses, them two were putting it together, and Daddy more more so. Uh, making sure the vendors were coming in, and they had the fire department going to do the park, and just the little things. He the was managing details, yeah, and, and that's what he was Richard all about. Would be out working yes, too, he would like, be out. You put, know, put this sign yes, here. No, no, I'm saying that between the two of them, it's what people don't see. They were hands on, and nothing went on without them two handling it. And so sometimes he would be preoccupied, and people would think, "Well, he's a he's an ill son of a gun." But, but, but he think, was just had so much on his mind. But, but asking the question about daddy with the fans and stuff, I don't. I think he was shy. A lot, and, and I think we got a little bit of that too. We're we, we're when you get us going, you can't stop us. But we're kind of you know <laughs> really? we're kind of <laughs> and we're kind of hesitant and shy to start out with. And I think yeah. daddy was like, "Well, because he's he he taught us like he was taught, keep your mouth shut and your ears open, you'll learn a lot more." So boy, only if I'd listen. <laughs> <laughs> now Kyle, he didn't hear that too. His, he he was he's always his mouth open, and he's done darn he's done good with it. So we're trying to take a, a cue from him and start to open our mouths a little bit and talk a little bit. I've seen you know some of Daddy's interviews in the past, and and it was just I think it just surprised him the popularity that the racing in general. You know, well, yeah, because they come, them, them people they come, were dirt farmers, yeah, man. but they didn't even have a bathroom in the house. They used an outhouse up until they were uh, slop jars. Yeah, they're just, 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 wow. they didn't have anything. They were dirt poor, and they built their way up from from scratch into this mega uh, racing empire in a man, matter of twenty five years. I mean, so you go well, from yeah, I, there was you no, remember, you remember mom, overwhelming after mom got sick there, some of her last days, and. Because Daddy was going in the Hall of Fame, it was all during that same time, and she talked about Daddy Richard Dale, all of them. She said, "Not bad for a bunch of old country boys." That's right, that's yeah. right. And I think it and, that, and that state yeah, yeah. pretty yeah. good job for a bunch of old country boys. Yeah, yeah. they didn't have they, they they come from just just dirt and built it into an empire. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. First things first, Steve, Timmy Ritchie and Mark Petty, you don't typically hear a lot about them. They're certainly not as near the limelight as Kyle has always been. Of course, Kyle is their first cousin. Here is my impression personally. They come across as just everyday, ordinary, normal folk who just so happened to have the last name Petty. They certainly don't put on airs and act like they're better than anybody else because of who they're related to. And that makes you like them. I understand completely, Rick. I feel the same way about those guys. I hadn't really thought about this, but Richie's given name is actually Richard Ellsworth Petty. So when he would go to the doctor's office, they'd call for Richard Petty 
and you can just imagine everybody's head popping up. <laughs> Richard Petty, where is he? <laughs> He's here. And there we go, Richie, leaving everybody kind of scratching their heads. And I don't know about Richie, but I kind of get that same reaction over my last name, especially when they discover that I have an interest in human spaceflight. People think it is the funniest thing in the world to tell me, Houston, we've got a problem. <laughs> I bet you've heard that plenty of times, Rich. That was funny the first 39,979 <laughs> times that I heard. It. And my brother was actually going through basic training when that movie came out. And so you can imagine the grief that he got during basic oh, sure. training. Yeah. Houston, we got a problem. Well, sorry, <laughs> I've heard it before. Fred Hayes, who was on that flight, Apollo 13, he actually signed a copy of his book for me and he inscribed it. Houston, we do not have a problem. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> boy, Fred. I like your style. <laughs> but somebody somewhere, Ron Howard, Jim Lovell, somebody owes me money for the emotional distress that they have caused me with the whole. Houston, we got a problem. Yeah, well, don't hold your breath there, Rick. Well, I won't. <laughs> Here is something else that I truly respect about Richie, Mark, and Timmy. Their family history does not start with Lee Petty in his racing career. Richie especially has done research that takes their family tree all the way back to the Civil War. And on our side of the family, a distant cousin of mine has traced the Wade family history also back to the Civil War. Man, I thought, dog, my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was a general in the Confederacy. Well, no, he was a drummer boy. <laughs> so we're not quite that glorious. <laughs> well, in my family tree, I'm actually related to Sam Houston, the really? first governor of Texas. So, yes, Houston, Texas, is named after me. <laughs> <laughs> Digging through those archives was one part of that search for Richie, but when their dad started Maurice Petty and Associates, Lee would come by the shop every day at 1130 and take them to lunch. Now, you can just imagine what an experience that was, but Lee would tell them all about their family tree. So that was a firsthand source that they got yeah. to spend time with every day. I imagine Lee also told them many great stories. I would love to attend a few of those lunches. What is more, they have actually become keepers of the family history because there is obviously the Petty Museum that everybody knows there in Level Cross in what used to be the Petty Enterprises shop complex. But the brothers, holy cow, man, they've got a museum of their own and it's pretty doggone breathtaking, just like the official one. I haven't been that one yet. I really look forward to going. Wow. What's more, they don't just have racing on their dad's side, but their mom, Patricia, is the stepdaughter of Red Myler, who worked for Tiny Lund and the Petties and Bud Moore, and who is also actually listed as the car owner for Lee Petty in the 1959 Daytona 500. I knew Red Miner was in NASCAR racing, but I had no idea his background was that varied. As youngsters, 
they knew their grandparents, Lee and Elizabeth, as grandfather and grandmother Petty. When we've sat down and we've talked to Kyle Petty, it was grandfather Petty when he was talking to Lee. Mm-hmm. Now, it was Pop Red on their mom's side, but there was none of this Papa and Granny stuff like I knew with my grandparents. <laughs> Adam and Jesse called Jeannie's parents Nanny and Papa. Oh, no. There was none of that with Lee and Elizabeth. They were evidently very proper when it came to relationships between adults and children. Absolutely. And they had a hierarchy in that relationship. The boys also had a fair share of that with Maurice, too. If their mama had to send them to the shop to get them out of her hair, watch out. So Chief basically just told him, when I leave for work, you leave the house. And don't come back until after I get home from work. So off they go into the woods, exploring the grounds of the shop. And you can just imagine what it was like for them to be going through the back 40 or whatever they called it into the graveyard of the race cars, the old race cars that Lee and Richard had wrecked. You know, they probably didn't mind what Maurice asked them to do at all. What great adventures they could have on their own. I mean, that seems to me to be a boyhood wish of every kid that age. No matter where they went, Lee Boy's putting green was off limits. <laughs> Riding their bikes across that thing was a capital yeah. offense. We're not talking about corporal punishment. We're talking about a capital offense. Many years ago, Kyle told me the same rule applied to him, and he never dared to get near that putting green. Mark once rode through it Uh-oh. once upon a time, and Lee was waiting on him. Uh-oh. Lee takes his golf club, and he sticks it out and just clotheslined Mark. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like something you would see in an old Western or war movie. <laughs> I guarantee you Mark got the message after that. And if Maurice and Richard and Lee were talking together, nope. You didn't mess with them then. And it wasn't even an or else situation. They didn't have a choice. Yeah. What did I say about hierarchy? (laughs) That's a pretty good example of it right there. Richard put in a weight room at the shop where the pit crew could work out once Petty Enterprises opened back up in 1986. So one day, Richie and Mark, they go in there to pump some iron. They're in high school. They're playing football. They're going to buff up. They're going to be teenage boys. Grandfather Petty sees him, and he's like, oh, you want to work out, do you? (laughs) (laughs) So he gives them each a hatchet and sets them to hacking away at the tops of the roots of his trees that were sticking up out of the ground. He's going to have Richie and Mark level them out so he doesn't run over them with his lawnmower. Well, old Lee is pretty sharp right there. Not only does he get free labor cutting away those roots, He's also helping his grandson get into shape. Now, that's pretty cool if you ask me. There was also a moment in this interview that really meant a lot to me because it reminded me of my relationship with my own dad and also with Richard and Adam and Jesse. When Richie was talking about his mom and dad, Maurice and Trish would tell their kids every time they left the house, I love you. He got kind of emotional about it. That was something that I didn't hear from my dad a lot, Mm. if ever. 
So every time that I talk to Richard, I love you. And today, Adam and Jesse, they probably just roll their eyes at it. But I tell them both at least once every day that I love them. That's what I want them to remember about me one of these days. A very long time from now. (laughs) But that's what I want them to remember about me. Rick, I've heard you say that to your son more than once. I've never seen them roll their eyes. Not once. I asked Mark and Richie and Timmy who their favorite cousin was on their dad's side, any of Richard and Linda's daughters, because surely it couldn't be Kyle. Now, I meant that more as just silly picking at Kyle a little bit, rather than as a serious question, looking for a serious answer. But here's something I really hadn't considered when I asked that question. Kyle is a couple of years older than Timmy, but Richie and Mark are quite a bit younger. So they looked up to Kyle. He's playing basketball and football at Randleman High School. He's the cool jock. Then he's a cool race car driver who wins his first race at Daytona. Mark actually wore a Kyle Petty t-shirt and a Kyle Petty cap <laughs> in his school picture that year. <laughs> Rick, do you sort of get the idea that Kyle might have been their hero? <laughs> <laughs> well, then his mama had to give him more money to get a more normal School picture. (laughs) Steve, I enjoyed this segment of the interview because it gave me a inside look at the Petty family that I simply didn't know about. What must it be like to have that kind of insider's view? And in so doing, Rick, you brought our listeners that same look at the Petty Boys. Taking the checkered flag and driving to victory lane is the goal for any racer. It tells the competition, my accomplishments resulted in a trip to the winner's circle. It's no different as a business owner, team leader, or coach. Recognizing those deserving is what we do every day at Five Star Awards and Engraving. Hi, race fans. This is Bob Laird, director of sales at Five Star and former Jackman for Buddy Arrington back in the 80s. Laser engraved and full-color corporate awards, as well as crystal, plaques, trophies, and promotional products are just some of a sample of what we offer at Five Star. With state-of-the-art equipment in our North Carolina facility, let our experienced graphic artists take you from idea to concept and ultimately the finish line. To view our beautiful and unique designs, please visit us at fivestarawards.net. The entire project can be completed online. Please reach out to me at bob.laird at fivestarawards.net. 919-954-1130. As a thank you, everyone who contacts me will receive at no charge a collection of NASCAR memorabilia featuring Richard Petty while supplies last. That's bob.laird at fivestarawards.net, 919-954-1130. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place, October 4th, 1979 issue of Grand National Scene. The race at North Wilkesboro was rained out, but not before rookie Dale Earnhardt became the first driver in the 32-year history of the track to turn in a qualifying lap of less than 20 seconds. Dale's time of 19.948 seconds translated to a speed of 112.795 miles an hour, and that broke the track qualifying record set by Darrell Waltrip the year before. DW said in this issue, that boy ain't got no respect. 
<laughs> I just don't know what the world is coming to with these rookies. The first time I set eyes on Dale, I knew he was going to be trouble. I got news for you. The first time that a lot of competitors set their eyes on rookie DW, they said the same thing. They knew he was going to be trouble. Daryl Waltrip and Dell Earnhardt, trouble? <laughs> Old DW hadn't seen anything yet. <laughs> Dale had this to say about his crew chief, Jake Elder. If it was something like making peace or politics, Jake Elder wouldn't be worth a damn. When it comes to racing, talking about springs and gears and how to get in and out of the corners, he can say it all in just a few sentences. He can tell you more in a minute than a politician can tell you in an hour. He is right. Jake was very knowledgeable and very direct. Jake always said what he meant and didn't want to fluff up anything. Ordinarily, a rainout meant that the staff would have to do quite a bit of scrambling to fill the space that would otherwise have been dedicated to race coverage. If that was the case in this issue, it surely didn't hurt the quality of the content. This is an awesome issue. Let's just start with the inside front cover photo. The full page shot features Bobby Allison resplendent in a white tuxedo, complete with tails, white shoes, white walking cane, and a black cowboy hat. I have no idea where that came from. Now, there is no feature on Bobby in this issue. There's no explanation of why Bobby's all decked out in a tux. It's just Bobby in a tux. Well, how easy it is to put that picture into print. Think about it. You've got a race driver from Alabama who's supposed to have grease under his fingernails, and here he is, resplendent in a white tuxedo and a black cowboy hat. If you have a photo like that, yeah, you better publish it. And that's exactly what Scene did. Rob Griggs had talked to Dale Earnhardt for his column while they were in Darlington, and Rob asked Dale about having been talked to by some other competitors. Dell said in this column, Donnie Allison and Richard Petty both have talked to me. If I had kept running like I was and not been aware of my problems, they'd all be afraid to run with me. I've been really fortunate that they have talked to me and helped me. When they were younger, they went through the same issues I'm going through now. Now, that was quite the sentence because it indicates that Dale Earnhardt, who had a lot of raw talent, no doubt about it, was also smart enough to know that he had to listen and learn to get better. There were features in this issue on Butch Lindley, Richard Petty making his 800th career start, the race before at Martinsville, Bob Johnson, and an extensive piece on Humphy Wheeler by Gary McCready. Richard Petty said in your story about his 800th start, the sport has changed in every area. I don't believe there is another sport that has undergone the changes racing has. Tracks have changed. The competition has changed. So have the money and spectators. The sport has changed with the times. It requires more skill, more finesse. Martinsville is a good example, too. It used to be a dirt track with a creek running through the infield, which was full of briars. Now it's the best track on the circuit. Other tracks have changed much the same way. No one could have thought the sport would turn out the way it has. I see it continuing to grow as long as times are good. The economy really runs everything, but as long as people have a nickel to spend, they'll spend it in racing. It's a change from their normal lifestyle, 
and escape from problems. Now, Steve, I will go on record and agree with Richard Petty here. This article was written a long time ago, more than 40 years ago, and no sport has ever changed like the sport of NASCAR. What Richard said right then could apply to racing today. He's exactly right about a couple of things. The economy runs everything. And as long as people have a nickel to spend, they'll spend it in racing. They don't have that nickel. They won't be there. And we have seen examples of that. So what he said applies today. And I'll go ahead and point this out. One of the biggest criticisms that you hear today about NASCAR is that it isn't like it used to be, and I don't watch anymore. Yeah, that's true. Referring to that same kind of change, people were saying the very same thing back in 1979 when this issue was released. So That's correct. Nothing's changed. <laughs> I mean, think about it. So the more things change, the more the they, more stay, they the stay the same. Yeah. Bob Johnson was the crew chief for Jack Beebe's Race Hill Farms team, which was based out of Madison, Connecticut. And a very short little note in this story got my attention. Steve Bird served as that team's tire carrier and rear tire changer, hopefully not on the same pit stops. (laughs) (laughs) And Birdie went on to lead Rob Moroso, Johnny Benson, and Randy LaJoy to Bush Series championships. I did not know that that's where Birdie got his start. No, I did not either. Bob's wife, Gussie, owned a beauty shop in Madison and traveled with Bob to the races when she could. Bob said in this story, sometimes it's tough for her to take off for a race. Her customers can get ugly. (laughs) Well, Bob was not the calmest type of guy. He's a bit volatile. So sometimes Bob can get pretty ugly, too. Larry W. Ritter from Robbins, North Carolina, penned a letter to the editor. And let's just say that Larry was not happy with Daryl Waltrip. Larry wrote in the letter that he was a crew chief for one of the independent drivers, but didn't say which one. So I don't know who he was working for at the time. But at Bristol, Buddy Parrott asked Larry if he would mind swapping pit stalls because the one that Diegard had picked was flooded from rain before the race. Buddy promised Larry some tires to qualify on at Darlington in exchange for swapping pits. Okay, fair enough. Wash my hand and I'll wash yours. That's right. So Larry, take it away. We moved all our equipment over one pit area. And during the first caution of the race, as my driver was coming into the pits, we stopped the car about four feet back from the front of our pit area. I knew that Waltrip would be coming into the pits fast. So we gave him all the room we possibly could four feet in front of our area, plus his own, and an open area in front of his car. With all of this extra room to give him, as he came into the pits, he brushed the seat of our jackman's pants and missed the right front fender of our car by less than a foot. I was still in front of our car on my way to change the right front tire when Daryl hit me. If I had been as experienced as tire changers on some of the other teams, I would have already been down on my knees starting to change the tire, and NASCAR would have had a fatal injury to report. While I would not be writing this letter today, luckily, I sustained only some cracked ribs and bruises 
but I was unable to work the remainder of the race. Larry wrote in his letter that he was still waiting on an apology from Daryl and his tires from Buddy. <laughs> oh, no. Larry was serious about this. Larry concluded this letter. I am sending a copy of this letter to Diegard Gatorade with the hope that Waltrip's contract will not be renewed. Mm. He isn't stopping there. If other fans will also write to Diegard Gatorade, maybe we'll be lucky and Waltrip will be sitting in the grandstands instead of behind the wheel of a race car where he can injure or even kill some other driver or crew members. Now, there's criticism. And then there's criticism. (laughs) (laughs) I think Larry might have a bit of a point right there, considering the fact that he nearly got, well, let's put bluntly killed. Obviously, he was upset about that, but he did everything but he asked him to do and did not get payment for it. Now, that's got to be somewhat upsetting just as well. I'm with you on this one, Larry. Here's the reason this particular edition of Grand National Scene is our issue of the week. Gene Granger's column was on a NASCAR-themed movie that he wanted to see made. And most of the column is comprised of people from the NASCAR community and who he could see playing them. And with Tim, Mark, and Richie being on the show this week, Gene wanted to see Telly Savalas play Maurice Petty. Oh, <laughs> Jack was bald. And Maurice Petty at that time was anything but bald with a full on mountain man beard. That's right. But just the polar opposite of telling. Come on. Maurice at that time looked like something straight out of Duck Dynasty. He's out in the <laughs> swamp hunting ducks with Phil and Jace and whoever else. But here's some of the rest of the cast that Gene daydreamed about. Marlon Brando. Bill France Jr. <laughs> Robin doing Williams. his best godfather. Doing his best godfather. Robin Williams. Humpy Wheeler. Burt Reynolds. Richard Petty. Jack Nicholson. David Pearson. Charles Bronson. Kel Yarborough. Alan Alda. Bobby Allison. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> Jerry Reed. James Hilton. That's a good one. Clint Eastwood. Dale Earnhardt. Another good one. Carol O'Connor, Archie Bunker himself, <laughs> Harry Hyde, <laughs> Robert Redford, Buddy Baker. Robert what? Redford is about half <laughs> of Baker's size. <laughs> okay. James Arness, Bud Moore, Don Rickles, Jake Elder. Wait just a minute. Don Rickles? As J- <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart, Glenn Wood. I like Bob- that. Bob Newhart, Dave Marcus, Bill Bixby, or the Hulk, <laughs> Dell Inman, <laughs> Rob Reiner, Benny Parsons, Peter Cushing, Governor Tarkin, the really, really bad guy from Star Wars, Dick May. What? Uh, I don't get that one either. <laughs> in addition to Star Wars, Peter Cushing has been in every horror movie ever made. Dick May is about as smiling and funny as a guy you'd ever want to meet. I think I know what he might have been going for there, but I don't know. Anyway, listen to this one. Sean Connery as Richard Childress. (laughs) I don't know about Sean, but I think Richard Childress would like that. (laughs) John Travolta, Dick Brooks, John Schneider, Kyle Petty, Eric Estrada, 
Terry Labonte. <laughs> Roger Moore. Bill Broderick? Oh, what? no. <laughs> 007 as Bill Broderick. <laughs> Henry Winkler. Jim Brewer. <laughs> hey. Anne Margaret, one of the most beautiful women who has ever walked the face of this earth as Stevie Waltrip. Ron Howard, Bill Elliott, Howard Cosell, Gene Granger. I like that one now. That's right on target. Walter Matthau as Tom Higgins. <laughs> who did Gene Granger see playing Steve Wade? Do you remember? Uh, no, I don't, but I'm thinking it should have been Donald Sutherland. Uh, you do have a point there, but that ain't the way that Gene Granger saw it. How did he see it? Don't shoot the messenger, <laughs> but John Belushi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I kind of wonder what old Gene thought of me back then. <laughs> All right, Jake, I guess we're on a mission from God. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, race fans, John Dodson here from NASCAR Technical Institute. NASCAR Tech is open and enrolling with classes starting every three to six weeks. In our 48-week automotive technology program, students learn everything from vehicle electronic technology to diagnostics and drivability. And as our exclusive educational provider for NASCAR, we offer a 15-week NASCAR elective where students learn engines, fabrication, aerodynamics, pit crew essentials, and more. NASCAR Tech also offers 36-week welding and CNC machining training programs so you can choose the path that best fits your career goals. Ready to see how you can get started? Visit uti.edu slash NASCAR today. NASCAR Technical Institute prepares graduates to work as entry-level automotive service technicians. Some graduates who take NASCAR-specific electives also may have job opportunities in racing-related industries. NASCAR Tech is an educational institution and cannot guarantee employment or salary. Hey, I'm Mark Petty. I'm Richie Petty. Hey, I'm Timmy Petty, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens, and if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports, so whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com, and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop, and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com, that's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. With this being the first episode of 2023, obviously we have to have a resolution or a goal to try to reach. We got a new one this year. 
It doesn't have anything to do with no 5,000 mile plateau either. <laughs> Been there, done that. Yep. And I better leave it there. <laughs> At our current monthly rate, the Scene Vault podcast should reach a total of 1 million downloads in mid September or so. Incredible. Steve, 1 million downloads. I'm just, I'm speechless, Rick. Speechless. A million. When we first started out, we were shocked when we got 50 downloads per episode. Isn't that crazy? Now, in order to help push us towards that goal, and I'd like to see us obviously get there a little sooner, maybe late August or something. Who knows? In order to help us do that, I'm going to give our listeners a little bit of a preview of what we got coming up early this season. Obviously, we have the Petty Brothers, Mark, Richie, and Timmy. But Steve, you and I have also sat down with Robin Pemberton. That's right. I also have an interview with Robbie Riser in the camp. Here's Robbie Riser. So Matt Kenseth gets in the car at Nashville. Let, let's go back and talk about how Matt Kenseth got in the car. Well, I think this is a how did that story. come about? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, when we had the problem on Saturday night, we went back to the motel. And we all went out to eat, and the whole team was eating, and we were talking about what we were going to do and how we are going to do this, and, and we needed to find a driver. And everybody kind of put some names out there, and, and Kathy Virtue put some, some names out there. And we were sitting at the table, and I said to my dad, um, you know, a lot of the names that have been brought out, people have done this already. And we're trying to build this team to go win races and 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 become a force down here we we got to look for somebody that's going to be able to take us there i said i hate to say this but if 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 we run the team and we hire matt kenseth to drive the car i think matt can do it and my dad was completely silent at the table completely <laughs> silent and uh it, and, and everybody had a, had a conversation, and, and, and when supper was over, my dad came to me and said, Robbie, do you, you, really, you really feel that that's what you want to do? And I said, well, Dad, I really feel like I'd like to drive it myself, but that ain't the right thing for where our team is right now. Really? You know, our, our team would be best if we could team up and have somebody that we have complete confidence in and, and go race. And he says, well, I can't believe I'm saying this, but if that's what you want to do, then, then you go do that. You're going to have to get a hold of him and see if he'll he'll drive the car. And had and you ever talked to him no, about about no, one? No, 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 no. What's really funny is there was no grand master plan. No. For the so we got back. We we did all our stuff at Bristol, and we we came back uh, and got home. And on Sunday morning, I I was I was going to try to get a hold of Matt. So I call I call his house and I get a hold of his. I think at that time it was his mom and told him she told me he was racing in Rougemont, North Carolina in a late model race. So I called over to Rougemont to the track and left a message that I needed Matt to give me a call. And I gave him my name and number and told him I'd like him to have me call as soon as he could. Well, it took a little while and all of a sudden Matt calls. He says, Robbie, what, what's, you know, what do you need? You know? Yeah. And, uh, and we got talking and, and, and he's like, are you, I told him what I wanted to do. And he was sort of like, are you sure? I said, yes, this is what I want to do. And and at, and at that yeah. time, he had just accepted a ASA ride for Jerry Gunderman up in Wisconsin, and I think he might have ran, ran a race or two. I can't remember how it was. But I think he really – I think at that time he really wanted to do what we were doing and wanted to come try this. And um, this was an opportunity. And, I mean, he – him and his, his dad finished racing up at Rougemont, and they drove down that night, and we we 
fit him in a car and made made the made the deal and and uh, he said he was going to go back and talk to Jerry about his ASA ride and and he would meet me at Nashville. That's how it all that's that's how it all started. And here is Robin Pemberton. You know we were pretty close to Alan, right? Mm-hmm. And and we worked with Alan. Like I had the Bilstein shop truck was in our parking lot all the time. They stored it there. And I would go in and build my shocks, and then I would build shocks for Alan and run them on the dyno and talk to Alan about stuff. And we were We went to dinner all the time. You know, he would come out to the house at the lake, and he would get on the pontoon boat, and he'd swim with the kids and stuff. You know, we, we had Kyle and him and I, and the families had good relationship. So that leading into you know the events that happened and and Felix was I believe Felix was the executor to the estate and when everything happened you know I mean Felix really was he felt the loss probably more than any of us and we all felt it you know and you know when he was getting things buttoned up over there and going through things and and you know and he would come back and say you've got you know you've got a seat in every car you know you're spending all this money alan only had one seat that he took and put it in every car he had and you know alan did it this way and you know and and so the the pressure to alan won the championship and and you know we finished whatever top five or something like that which is great for us you know i i think I, I think it just changed the dynamics with us, right? And you know he, you know Felix got the, you know looking at the the bills and stuff like that, and not being a, you know a, a, a in the trenches car guy. Sometimes he didn't have all the information he had to make decisions, and he would go off on you. And then realize, then when you talk to True, he said, okay, I didn't know that was that. This was brake calipers or this was valve springs or whatever. But it just got to be picking on each other a little bit too much, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think it was, um, you know, he and I, he he had had his fill of me and I was was just, you know, tired of of just things, right? right? I mean... We all lost a friend, right? But I think that that just changed the dynamics. And, you know, we were in, we blew up at Charlotte in the 600. And and we were 10th in points. And so I'd given all the guys the day off on Monday and my brothers, Roman and Ryan, we worked, taking the motor out of the car, you know, getting it ready for when they everybody come in on Tuesday, you know, we just, and uh, Felix come in and, and said that we were complacent and we were, you know, <laughs> we were accepted mediocrity and fired all three of us the same day. And we're in there working on a holiday. So, Steve, what do you think about that, my friend? That is some very good stuff, Rick. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy it. 
I am sending a copy of this letter to Die Guard Gator. I am sending a copy of this letter to Die Guard Gatorade. I am sending a copy of this letter to Die Guard Gatorade. To Die Guard Gatorade with the hope that Waltrip's contract will not be renewed. 